Amen. Please be seated. In the early 1980s, there was a movie called The Right Stuff. Critics of this movie rightly pointed out that it plays a bit fast and loose with the historical truth. And even though this movie isn't entirely true, I think it still gives a beautiful template for understanding today's gospel text. Listen to the plot and hopefully you'll see what I mean. The plot is this. In the late 1940s, a group of courageous pilots accepted what many thought an impossible mission. These men were a part of what was called the X-1 program, and their task was to fly faster than anyone had ever flown. These men were tasked with being the very first pilots to break the sound barrier. There were many who saw this endeavor as pure foolishness. And at the beginning of the movie, the naysayers seemed like they had a point. One plane after another tried and failed to reach the sound barrier. Flying at over 700 miles an hour put unimaginable stresses on the aircraft, stresses that resulted in many of the planes disintegrating mid-flight. But the resolve of the pilots and their support staff was undeterred. Engineers and researchers, armed with the data of new failed flights, went back to the drawing board and they began reinforcing the planes. They experimented with different sizes and shapes. They tried different materials and composites. And eventually, all of their hard work paid off. They produced a plane that could endure the tremendous stresses and vibrations that were encountered at the, at the threshold of the sound barrier. But even after this success, there was still a daunting problem no one had any idea what to do with. You see, as the plane approached the sound barrier, the pilots needed to gain altitude. And normally, this would be accomplished by pulling the control stick backwards. But pilot after pilot found that the controls were unresponsive. Some of the best pilots in the world approached the sound barrier, but they were unable to control the aircraft. All of their training and aviation knowledge was of no use, and many paid with their lives. But at the climax of the movie, this one pilot had a radical idea. Everyone thought that when the plane began to break the sound barrier that the controls stopped working. But this pilot, a man by the name of Chuck Yeager, had a brilliant insight. Chuck Yeager thought, what if the problem with the controls wasn't that they stopped working? What if the controls just worked backwards from what everyone expected? What if instead of pulling the stick back to bring the nose up, what if that motion instead sent it down? It was a long shot, but Chuck was willing, willing to risk his life on the hunch. So Chuck jumps into the X-1 aircraft and he puts his idea to the test. And at the critical moment, just as he reached the sound barrier, Chuck knew he had to gain altitude. His pilot training told him to pull the stick back, but instead this time, Chuck pushed the stick forward. This normally would send the plane into a dive, but to Chuck's amazement, this time it didn't. When Chuck pushed the stick forward, the nose came up. And that day his plane flew faster than anyone had ever traveled before. The story, while not historically accurate, I think still gives a graphic illustration of what Jesus is doing in the simple words of the Beatitudes. Jesus is looking at a group of people gathered on a hill. He's looking at the kingdoms of this world and he's telling them their intuitions about how to use the controls of this world are wrong. They think controls like power and wealth 
They think things like prestige and clout, those are the paths to success. But the Beatitudes stand in stark contrast to those assumptions. The Beatitudes assume that the controls of this world work backwards. And God had revealed that incredible truth before. Back in the Exodus, before Israel entered the Promised Land, God called His people to a mountain and made them a set of promises. On Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with Israel. And in this covenant, God swore that He would be their God and they would be His people. But God doesn't make this covenant with Israel because they earned it or because they were impressive. Israel doesn't catch God's eye with their moral fortitude or upright qualities. No, God loved Israel even though Israel wasn't the greatest among the nations. Even though Israel doubted and complained, even though Israel chased after other gods, God loved them still. And I don't know what lesson you take from the Old Testament, but might I suggest one? Israel's compliance to God's law was not a prerequisite for God's love. God loved Israel while they were still yet sinful. And that seems backwards, right? The wisdom of this world would tell you that possessing something as valuable as the love of God would be something you possess only if you worked tirelessly to earn it. But that's not how the love of God works at all. The love of God works backwards from what the world expects. And boy, was that good news for Israel, because they don't ever seem to get it right. There were individuals in Israel's history that were shining examples of the kind of person that God desired. But for the nation as a whole, its history is full of disaster and disappointment, calamity. Yet in spite of all of the disappointment, the hope that the Messiah would come and set all things right remained. And after generations of waiting, the hope of Israel, the hope of all mankind, did appear. And what's remarkable about how Matthew tells the story of the Messiah is that the Messiah doesn't just show up and do his own thing. Instead, the Messiah shows up and he retraces the steps of Israel's history. In Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is born in the promised land, just like Abraham and Isaac. But the promised land isn't safe for Jesus, so the Messiah flees to Egypt. The Messiah leaves the promised land and goes to the safety of Egypt, just like Jacob did. In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus comes out of Egypt, just like Israel did in the Exodus. In Matthew chapter 3, just as Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea, Jesus goes through the waters of the Jordan, through the waters of baptism. And in Matthew chapter 4, just as Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of their idolatry, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Every single thing Israel ever did, Jesus seems to go back and do it again. But the difference is that when Christ does it, it's done the way God had always intended. Every temptation that seduced Israel was defeated by Christ. Every rebellious act committed by Israel was undone by the Son's perfect obedience to the Father. And then in Matthew chapter 5, something astounding happens. God made the old covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, right? But now Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, calls a group of people to gather around the side of another mountain. 
And from atop this new mountain, Jesus begins pronouncing new promises. New promises of new blessings for anyone who dwells in his kingdom. In the beatitude, Jesus is giving good news. God was standing in Israel and he sought to make a new covenant. A new covenant in which all the promises of the old would now be fulfilled. And that simple yet beautiful picture is why the Beatitudes are more than just timeless truths or or truisms about the world or the human condition. There are many religions and sacred texts that possess such things as that. The Bible itself contains the book of Proverbs. It's full of good advice. So naturally, people are tempted to read the Beatitudes as if it were just that, good advice. But when it comes to the Beatitudes, I don't think reading them like Proverbs makes much sense. As a matter of fact, if these 12 verses in Matthew chapter 5 were simply a list of wise sayings, then I think we have a big problem. Guys, mourners don't always seem to be comforted, do they? So far as I can tell, the meek do not appear to be inheriting the earth. And exactly how many people have gone down to their graves without ever seeing justice served? So if the Beatitudes are just Proverbs, if the Beatitudes are just good advice, then the Beatitudes are a big swing and a miss. So guys, I want you to listen to me closely. The Beatitudes are not good advice. The Beatitudes are the proclamation of good news. The Beatitudes aren't fortune cookie wisdom for us to break out when times get tough. No, the Beatitudes are an announcement, a proclamation by Jesus to the world that something new is starting to happen, that God is beginning to work in this world in a fresh way. I think that at its foundation, the Beatitudes are Jesus announcing new promises for his new and coming kingdom. The Beatitudes are Jesus making promise, promises that address all of the suffering and injustice that are found in this world. But the way Jesus will address all the evil in the world looks to the world like controls working backwards. Guys, Christ the Redeemer is not a place where we come to do some nice religious stuff on Sunday morning. Seemingly now more than ever, the battle lines between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdoms of this world have been clearly drawn. And make no mistake, Christ the Redeemer has taken aside. Every single class, every single service, every single prayer, every shared meal, every meeting, every single thing this parish family does is aimed at Christ being imaged in you. It's aimed at this parish imaging the promises of Christ in this world. From the time that you're born until the day that you draw your last breath, our goal and hope at CTR is to see you formed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And we hope and we pray that the world looks at us and thinks to themselves, what a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> we hope that the world sees us using the controls of this world unlike anyone they've ever seen that they see us use the controls backwards from what they thought was right. And we pray that by seeing us, that they may dare to join us. Guys, I don't know if you've looked around lately, but the way the world says to use the controls isn't working out all that great. The world sees the same exact calamities as we do. The world sees the same existential threats 
that we perceive as well, then every one of us senses that any one of them could send us crashing down into a heap of rubble. The world is pulling back on the stick and the nose isn't moving up. It seems to me that what the world needs is a group of people who understand the truth. What the world needs is a group of people who follow Christ and embody the new promises of the Beatitudes. What the world needs is a group of people who understand that the controls of this world work backwards from what you think.